Okay, so today, friends, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series uh, in the topic of money. We're taking a break from the book of Acts, and this Sunday will be our last Sunday on the topic of money. We're going to jump right back to Acts next Sunday, and then that should carry us on to the end of the year because we have about two more chapters to go, okay? But for today, we're going to conclude our short sermon on money, and we're going to take a look at a passage that I think is familiar to a lot of us, and it's a story of when Judas rebuked Mary for wasting, as he claims, the bottle of perfume to anoint Jesus' feet with. You guys remember that story? You probably heard of it, okay, preached or studied it before. And what this passage does is that it instructs us on the specific way Christ calls his followers to view or use their assets, okay? And it also warns us that if we don't view or use our assets in this way, what can end up happening is that the assets in which we once owed, owns, can end up owning us. That's the warning here. And like Judas, when that happens, when our assets has grabbed a hold of our hearts, we can end up being alienated from God and from his people in the service of this new master, okay? So let's get into it. This is God's word taken from John chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Thus says the Lord. What this passage shows us about our earthly possessions, friends, is that only when we view them as a tool to worship Christ with and not as an end in itself will we be freed from its enslaving grip, okay? When we view our assets as a tool to worship Christ with and not as an end in itself, we'll be freed from its enslaving grip. Let's let's go to our first point, okay? John, the author of this passage, calls us to view the whole of our net worth like Mary as a tool to worship Christ with. So, before getting into it, let's first start with the context surrounding this story, okay? So we get the full picture of what it's talking about. First, what we got to see is when this event took place. And it's right after Jesus raised Lazarus up from the dead, okay? That's what John 11, the previous chapter, was all about. And here, in John chapter 12, verse 1, we're reminded of that detail again. It says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where who was? Lazarus was, who Jesus raised from the dead. So John's reminding us of that here. And the picture here is that this gathering was a very worshipful, joyful, awe-filled moment where everyone was still in this kind of state of delighted shock about what just happened. Lazarus, who's meant to be dead, 
Lazarus, who's meant to be surrounded by the coldness of a dark tomb, was instead at this dinner celebration surrounded by warmth and food and friends and family. And Jesus, who verse 2 says this dinner was actually for. This meal, a lot of commentaries agree, was most likely originally prepared as a funeral banquet for Lazarus, but it ended up becoming a celebratory banquet for Jesus. What a sweet depiction of the way Jesus promises he'll redeem our tears. And they're celebrating Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And by doing so, he showed the world who he truly is. Okay? Who in the Bible, friends, has the authority to cause life to spring forth from nothing by the power of his word? Who in the Bible said, let vegetation spring forth from the ground and vegetation rose? Who in the Bible said the words, let life appear in the deep sea and life appeared? Who was it? It was God. Only God had the authority to do that. And who here in this passage or in the passage previously, simply by saying Lazarus rise, rose Lazarus from the dead, it was Jesus. Through this act, Jesus is proclaiming to the world who he truly is. Okay, and the rest of the Gospels and the Scripture also claim that as well, that Jesus truly is God with us. And Mary saw this with her own eyes, that the claims they're making are true. So what she did in verse 3 is she offered up all of she owns to Jesus to give him the glory he deserves. Let's take a look at verse 3. It says, She took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. We got to get into this symbolism here a little bit, okay? Because this this act is, is pregnant with it. The first symbolic point we see here is the price of the perfume itself. That tells us how much Mary values Jesus. In verse four, if you take a look at it, Judas prized this bottle of perfume at about 300 denarii, which is more than a year's worth of wages, okay? A worker will be paid one denarii a day. So 300 denarii is more than a year's worth of of work. And Mary poured all of it upon the feet of Jesus. By the way, this bottle of perfume was most likely a piece of investment that was passed down to her by her parents. Now we pass on land and stuff like that. She got a really expensive bottle of perfume, and she used all of it. Upon Jesus, counting him more precious than her life's inheritance. The second symbol is that in verse 3, Mary's act here was described as an act of anointing. Okay, and stick with me a little bit. This is an Old Testament language because when a king back then in the Old Testament would be officiated into office, what you would do is pour oil down his head, signifying that their time of rule has has come. If today presidents are anointed into office by vows, back then kings are anointed into office by being poured oil on their heads. A little weird, but there you have it. That's how they did it. But Mary here anointed not Jesus' head, but what? His feet, which is another symbolic move. Since to wipe someone's feet was what servants would do back then for their masters after they've returned back home. You see, all that Mary's saying here is that not only is Jesus precious to her, a year's worth of wages, not only is Jesus her king, she anointed him, but also Jesus is her master. She anointed his feet. 
But the last symbolic act here is what Mary used to wipe Jesus' oil-drenched feet with here. And it wasn't a towel. Back then, servants would use a towel, but now here, Mary used her hair. Now, that's a little weird. Why did she do that? Well, it's because, just like some cultures today, the culture back then is that the lower one's head would bow to the ground, and the lower one's hair would kind of fall to the ground as a result of that bowing, it symbolizes how grateful that person is to the one they're bowing to. And Mary's hair here was how low? It was all the way to the ground. It was touching Jesus' feet, touching the floor, saying this, I can't get any lower. I can't be any more thankful for what you just did. You just brought my brother back to me from the dead. My gratitude to you is immeasurable. Whatever I have, all of it, this bottle, my life's inheritance, all of what I am will from now on be used to ascribe glory unto you. For the whole realm of nature mine, Mary said, it'd be an offering far too small, not even close Do you see how sweet and peaceful and perfect and majestic this opening scene was? It kind of felt like how things were back then in the garden, didn't it? Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, it was filled with shalom, with awe, with peace, with God dwelling in communion with his people until a serpent back then entered the scene, and abruptly destroyed the shalom of Genesis chapter 2 with what? With a question. Similarly, Judas here in verse 5 entered the scene as well, and he too abruptly shattered the shalom of this scene with what? With a question. A very spiritual sounding one, by the way. He looked at Jesus' feet and asked, is it worth it? Really what he's asking is, is he worth it? What a waste, Judas said as he looked at Jesus' feet. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, at face value, this seemed to be a very selfless, even spiritual-sounding question, right? Just like... Satan's question was in the garden, did, not, did God not say as if he wanted to clarify God's word to Adam and Eve? Did God not say? But soon we'll see that this spiritually sounding question, the best lies are half lies, is merely a disguise to mask the true state of Judas's heart, which leads us to our second point. We got of your assets like Mary as a tool to worship Christ with and not as an end in itself like Judas did, Okay. So, if, when I first looked at Judas's question here, I was a little concerned because as I read it, I found myself thinking, you know what, I think I might actually be with Judas on this one because <laughs> it makes so much sense, right? Wouldn't it be so much more practical if the bottle of the perfume was sold and the money was given to the poor instead of wasting it like this on Jesus' feet? But then I have to settle that knee-jerk reaction I had with how this passage explicitly portrays Judas. One, he's 
the antagonist in the story. He's the bad guy, right? He was, it's told that he was about to betray Jesus, verse 5 reminds us. And second, he didn't actually care for the poor, verse 6 says. He just wanted the money for himself. In fact, verse 6 continues to explain that he's been stealing from the group's collective money bag all along. So Judas's words isn't meant to be taken agreeably here. We're meant to see something wrong with it. But, but still, his suggestion to me made sense. It made me think, what really is a better use for Mary's perfume? To give it to the poor or to use it to ascribe glory to Jesus? Which one? And the answer is found in Jesus' response back to Judas in verses 7 to 8. Let's take a look at it. In verse 7 to 8, Jesus tells Judas, leave Mary alone, meaning that what she's doing is right, for the poor you'll always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now stick with me here for a little bit because I've got to open this up. What Jesus said there in the beginning of verse 8, the poor you'll always have with you, that phrase, that phrase is actually a phrase directly quoted from the Old Testament. The original quote is in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. And it says this, for there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Okay, the poor you'll always have with you, Jesus quotes, right? However, the original verse in Deuteronomy 15 continues like this. Um, You'll always have the poor with you. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You'll always have the poor with you, Deuteronomy 15 says, so give your money to them. But Jesus changed it up a bit. He changed the ending. He said, the poor you'll always have with you, but you won't always have me. He changed the, so give your money to them, to use your money to worship me. It's okay. Leave Mary alone, Judas, because I'm going to die soon, referring to the cross, of course. I won't physically be with you anymore, so let Mary do this. Let her use this to worship me. Now, here's a question that the reader has to think about. Why did Jesus change the ending of that verse? Is Jesus saying that it's not important to give your money to the poor? Just use it all to worship Mary, um, to worship Jesus like Mary did here? Well, of course not. By changing the last part of Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus isn't pinning the original command of giving to the poor with Mary's act of worshiping him. What he's doing is he's combining it. He's combining it. He's saying, Judas, if you really want to solve people's problems, if that's really your heart's concern, then you can't disconnect the two. And by revealing that Judas is separating the two things as two separate things, Jesus was trying to reveal what it was that Judas's heart truly trusted in. See, Judas saw Mary's perfume bottle And all he saw was its pragmatic market value. And how if you sell it for money, you could solve a lot of people's problems. We had the solution, Judas said to Mary. And you wasted it on Jesus' feet. But do you see how that's revealing of Judas' heart? Do you see how based on his question, it showed us where his hopes truly lied in. It showed us where his answers to our problems are. It's what? It's money. 
the problem isn't what we need isn't to worship Jesus more. What we need, Mary, what they need, Mary, is more what? More money. You see, on the outside, Judas looked like he trusted Jesus. On the outside, he looked like a follower of Jesus. He reclined next to him on the dinner table, our passage says. He conversed with him. He fellowshiped with him. He conversed with his people. But on the inside, he looked at all that and thought to himself, what a bunch of kumbaya rubbish. What is this gathering of singing and worshiping? You know what the world really needs more of? You know what we really need, friends? It's more money. That's really the answer, Mary. How are you so naive and blind to that? We need more money, not deeper worship. He disconnected the two. And is that the answer, friends? Is earthly poverty the thing that the Bible says is our biggest enemy? Is earthly poverty our biggest problem? It's not. But see, at some point, this is a stark rebuke we see in this passage. At some point, we'll slip up. It'll come out. Like Judas on the outside, a lot of us can look like we're following Jesus. We come to church on Sunday morning. We sit under the preaching of God's word. We fellowship with his people. We sing to his name. We might even be in a position of leadership in the church. What was Judas's role here? He was the deacon, right? I mean, so to speak, he handled the money, okay? Not that I'm trying to rebuke the deacons here specifically. It's not what I'm saying. But the point is, we're not immune to this. No one is. The sickness of ultimately trusting money as our ultimate solution can infiltrate anyone, even the holiest, most committed-looking member. If I can be honest, there are two topics that I have the hardest time preaching about. Because there's just a lot of cracks and struggles in my own life with these, two, with these two topics. The first one is prayer. It's prayer. The second one is money. <laughs> I'm not immune to it. And I've never realized this before, but I was writing this part of the sermon. I started to think, you know what? Perhaps maybe those two struggles of mine are actually interconnected. Maybe the reason that I don't nearly pray as much as I should is because I trust in money a little too much. I trust in chariots and horses. I trust in how well, how many people come on Sundays. I trust on the bank account number I see at the end of the month. And I don't pray. I don't know. Maybe. And that's the point I want us all to really be self-introspective about and look at our hearts. That's the point here. Just like Judas, though on the outside we can claim and to worship Jesus, I'm preaching here every Sunday, almost, and many of us are serving the community in so many ways. There's going to be slip-ups throughout our week that reveals to us what it is that our hearts actually truly trusts in. Like Judas, 
that slip-up may look like a small offhand comment that he'd even realize he made. Or like me, that slip-up may look like a lack of prayerfulness. Or perhaps that slip-up may look like a split-second decision that we made that reveals where it is our hearts truly trust in. Or it may be a long-term spending pattern. I don't know. I don't know what it'll be. There are tons of slip-ups that can happen. And when it does, what this passage is so painfully instructing us to do is to not be defensive about what was just revealed. To listen to it, to sit in it, to trace it down to the root cause, to admit it, and to be open to the potential that there might be some truth in it. There might be some truth that, like Judas, the true thing you and I place our hopes in is not Jesus, but it's money. No matter how much we might look like we trust Christ on the outside. And let me just say this. I am not unaware of the fact that a big reason of why I can speak so idealistically about this is because perhaps I haven't myself tasted true poverty. I'm aware of that. Of course, it's really easy for someone who hasn't tasted true poverty to say, you don't need money, all you need is Jesus. It's like, okay, it's easy for you to say. But we got to keep in mind, I'm not the one doing the rebuking here. Like I said earlier, when it comes to prayer and money, I'm probably feeling rebuked more than anyone in this room. This passage isn't me rebuking you. This passage is John the author rebuking the Judas that might still live in all of us. And perhaps viewing it that way will give this rebuke a little more traction in our hearts because now it's not coming from a person of naive of poverty. It's coming from the Apostle John, the author of this passage, who has tasted a kind of earthly poverty that I doubt any of us here have even come close to before. Okay, which leads us to our last point. If we view our assets as a tool to worship Christ with, and not as an end goal in itself, will be freed from its enslaving grip. Let's go to our last point. The Apostle John, the author of this passage, he left it all to follow Christ. These words come from a man who's lost more earthly capital for the sake of Christ than any of us here have before. First, he left his family business. Remember that? What was he? A fisherman, right? And back then, when you leave your family business and your family's career, you can't go to college and choose a degree to then get another job. That was it. That was it for you. You you left everything. He left it. I'm not saying that you got to leave the family business to follow Christ. I'm just saying that was Jesus' specific call for John in Matthew chapter 4, and he listened. He did it. And while he's running this gospel account in Ephesus, most scholars believe, he was constantly chased by local authorities for preaching the gospel. He was running away. And eventually he was caught and exiled where he died with nothing. John wasn't some rich guy who was conveniently telling us all this from the comfort of his own mansion. 
This was a man whose life, all of it, embodied Mary's ritual. It was a man who, like Mary, is no longer imprisoned by his assets. He's given it all to Christ and to others as one. But here's the question. Why? How did John get there? I mean, we know how Mary got there, right? Mary saw Jesus raise his dead brother up from the grave. But Jesus never did anything like that for John or for any of us sitting here today. So the question we're asking is, how can people like John, how can people like us, who's never experienced what Mary experienced, also be thrown into this kind of state of constant and deep worship to Christ to where all of our assets we view as His, to be used for His kingdom, for His glory? Well, friends, the answer is this. It's by realizing that we've actually experienced something much greater than Mary did. We have. And you're saying, what? No way. Yes, we have. You're right. Neither John or us has ever seen Jesus bring one of our dead family members back up from the grave. But you know what John did see? He saw Jesus enter into a grave so that he may live. He saw Jesus willingly walk into a grave for his eternal life. This whole passage, friends, is an appetizer for the cross. The only reason why Jesus had the right to raise Lazarus up from the dead or any of us sinners up from the tomb, the only reason he had the right to do that is because he's committed that one day he himself will enter it on our behalf. The beginning of this passage starts with an image of an anointed king. But Jesus, in verse 7, ends it by reminding everyone of the day of his burial. Why? Because unlike other kings, this one doesn't win our allegiance by impressing us with a golden throne or with a majestic castle. He melts our hearts with a rugged cross and with a cold tomb. His throne was a cross and his castle a tomb. You can live because he went in there for you. And unless this good news that changed John's life, seeps deeper into our hearts as well. Until this good news that was physically portrayed before Mary's eyes as her brother climbed out of the grave shocks our system like it did Mary's, our hearts will never be freed from the prison of stuff. And you'll never be able to give it away or know how to save it or know how to share and distribute it in such a way that ascribes glory unto the king, you and I will forever be like Judas, who follows Christ in public, but betrays him in the dark silence of our own pockets. This is the call of this passage. May God protect you and I. May God protect his church from the enslaving power that money can so easily have over us. May we be freed from the lie 
that our greatest enemy is poverty and our awaited hero is money. It's not. Our greatest problem, friends, is that we're sinners in the hands of a holy God and that there is no way out. Not one of our good deeds and righteous acts can save us from that problem. But only if he who was rich became poor for us, only he, the king of life, dying for us, can solve it. He is our hero. He's the one who traded places with us and entered into the grave that had our names on it. May the beauty of that gospel, I pray, friends, change the order of your heart's loves and lead you to distribute your assets properly, well. And as we do that, I hope that the fragrance of the gospel fill this city, not unlike the fragrance of the perfume filling up that dining table in Mary's house, as a good news goes forth, not just by the words that we so easily say, but by the way we view and use all the things God has momentarily entrusted to us on this side of eternity. May we do that. I hope we do for the sake of our own hearts and for the sake of his gospel message. Let's pray. Father, what a harsh rebuke that John laid out in this passage. What a harsh rebuke you laid out to Judas in your response to him. How many times have our hearts really slipped up and revealed its insides, showing that what has most authority, that what sits at the throne of it, is not you, Jesus. It's something else. Surgery is often painful. But I pray that as you apply your um, harsh discipline to the children that you love, we would know and view uh, the pain we feel, not as a sword that comes from an angry enemy, but as a scalping knife done by a skillful heart surgeon who wants his children to love him more than the things of this earth. May your beauty shine forth. May you be more immeasurably treasured by your people. And may you take up most capital in our mind and our hearts. May you have this mercy on each of us here, Father, and may you have this mercy in your church as a whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.